I never thought about how until I was here. Having got here, it suits me in, in many ways. It is a little on the, on the edge of things. I think even its natives would say that. A cut price crowd, urban yet simple, dwelling where only salesmen and relations come. And across there, over the estuary of the Humber, is Yorkshire, and you can just see Hull where Philip Larkin lives. It's a place of thunder, clouds, dark red brick Georgian streets where they survive, and steeples and domes. And beyond Hull was the North Sea. If anywhere's the end of England and the end of land, it's Hull and beyond Hull. Welcome to the podcast. It's a podcast about the culture of Hull, what we do and who we are. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope it brings you joy and satisfaction, or at the very least, A marginal improvement on 2018, if last year was less than vintage for you. I've made a pact with myself to look at my phone less, charge my phone and my laptop away from my bed so I don't fall asleep gawping at them, and just generally fit more into my day because... Because Because time time feels like it's accelerating. Anyway, I'm looking forward to bringing you more conversations with writers of Hull, and to kick this year off... It's Jim English. Jim is a writer and actor. Or is he an actor and writer? Does it matter? Google searches autofill feature suggests Jim English actor and then serves you up a Wikipedia page for Jim Broadbent, who is indeed English and an actor. But Google also thinks that I want to see adverts for products that I've already bought, so Google and its algorithms can fuck off. I'm going to let Jim speak for himself. But I will tell you, by way of introduction, that he finished his training at Rose Bruford in 2013 and was shortlisted for the Spotlight Prize for graduate actors that year. It was also the place that he started writing. He's performed in a load of great shows with great companies and I thought he was terrific about a year ago in Barry Rutter's final touring production for Northern Broadsides, which was called For Love or Money. He also appears in Mike Lee's latest film, Peter Lou. Now, the first of his plays that I saw was The Words I Should Have Said to Phoebe Lewis, which I saw at Hull Truck and which made me really excited that there was another distinctive Hull voice writing engaging and challenging stories. Now, I have to mention that the sound quality of this recording is not the best. I spoke to Jim in a cafe in the Old Town uh, and I thought that it would lend the interview a cosmopolitan ambience. It does not. Every blast of the coffee milk steamer sounds uh, like a Victorian factory at full tilt, and every dropped teaspoon a carelessly tossed scaffolding pole. My sincere apologies. I'd just come from a very promising house viewing, and I was a bit excited, and I'd left my good mics at home, and I had to rely on this shitty built-in microphone on the device I was recording with. So my advice to you, if you're going to interview somebody, just find somewhere quiet. 
You can add the background in later if you really want, and you can make it sound like you are anywhere. Any stuff you want, you want to cut, you don't like. I swear a lot. Just turn me, mate. That's fine. Um, hi, Jim. <laughs> this is official stuff. Now, actor and writer or writer and actor? Which came first? Yeah, in a sense. Were you, were you an actor first and then you started writing? Yeah. Trained as an actor at drama school. That was Booford. Yeah. And then um, I think I was writing bits and bobs. And then um, we sort of do at the final year, you do a um, showcase. And um, actually, I asked Tom. I asked Tom, and he was like, Matthew Dunster. Yeah. I the old. So I did, I did that. Anyway, lots of people were stuck. Yeah. I think one person asked me, they'd write something. Yeah. Anyway, the people sort of directing this. Showcase like this is this is all right. Yeah. We haven't found a piece for Sean. We haven't found a piece for Libby. You know, all these different people. Can you write one? So I ended up writing about four pieces for this showcase. Wow. Yeah. Did you get paid for that? No. Can you know, Did they all get agents? <laughs> mm, I think so. Good. Yeah. Well, they they should pay you commission for for life, yeah, they really, shouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, did you write a piece for yourself? No. Right. no, I've never really done that. Okay. I've probably sort of done it separate. Okay. I want to though, I yeah. think. Yeah. I think I will. Yeah. It's just a bit. I'm going to write a piece and I'm going to be in it. Yeah. Especially like a one man. Yeah. I think it's quite a. There's some great one mans, but I think it's quite a selfish thing. Yeah. You absolutely have to strip everything away and I guess. Yeah, this is a character thing. You're too sort of connected with it. Yeah. But isn't that what makes it what would make it brilliant? Maybe. Yeah. I've seen too many things though where, especially like plays where the writer's in it and there's maybe like three or four. Yeah. And you go, fuck, it's a good play, but you're the weak link. Right. <laughs> like, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that's kind of a fear. Maybe, oh, great play, but you were shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And seeing it from from that way around, that perspective, has that helped your acting? Did it? Did that sort of change the way you approached? Oh, it helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of left drama school, and I, well, I was lucky. I landed. I landed straight in a job with Mike. Yeah, Mike Bradwell. Yeah. And then you know, I was, and then I think I just got a telly job as well. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this is piss easy. This, <laughs> this is. I'm going up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Never. What I'm gonna do, you know? And uh, it just sort of went dead. And uh, I think there was sort of a group of us were like, let's just let's put summer on. Can you write summer? So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll write summer. And then sort of put that on. And then people would call me in for my acting because yeah. they'd seen my play, even though I wasn't in it. They'd be like, oh, you're the guy who wrote that play. And then I'd sort of got acting wet from it. So whenever one one's dead, uh, I yeah. just put the writing on, and then if the writing's dead, you know, hit the acting off. Yeah. And sort of, but I've never, never done that yet. Yeah. Well, I was chatting to Tom at uh, Wells the other day, yeah. and he thinks that actors make good writers. Not always, but that's his take on it. Because you have that perspective of, you know, we have to speak these speeches that have been written for us. So we know what kind of works and what feels right. Big examples like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, obviously she she's an actress and now she's a huge writer. Yeah, she's a... Killing Eve and, and um, Fleabag and stuff. 
Yeah. And there's, and, uh, there's loads of other examples of actors who've, who've turned down to writing. Well, Harold Pinter, for a start, that's the famous one, isn't it? Yeah. He, um, he was sort of scratching around. Joe Arlen, Joe Arlen's one. Joe Arlen as well, yeah, he was a writer, wasn't he? Like Pinter. Um, and Pinter, I think, was sick of doing shitty sort of French windows. Sort of. I'm, I'm, I'm like that now. I'm not French windows, I'm yeah. Did you Do you think, I want to be in this place, so fuck it, I might as well try and write it? I'm sort of... I'm at a point with that. Yeah. I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to be in something sort of next year because um, I've got to a sort of point where you're waiting all this time to sort of act mm. and then the thing that comes through is, for example, this week was a shithole of a house. This is self-tape you have to do? Yeah. Yeah. Shithole of a house. Enter a shithole of a man. <laughs> like, it's great. It's great. Yeah. No, it's great. Uh, you kind of, in a way, you sort of want to not get that part, don't you? I want to play a king. Like, I've <laughs> yeah. played, like, I think my show really is just a, a wide range of drug dealers, burglars, right. homeless people. I, I'm in a bit of a hole with playing homeless people at the moment. Yeah. So I kind of have this edge to be like, you know what, I'm more, I'm more than that. Yeah. But then again, people sort of look at you and go, oh, you're doing good. You're doing really good. You, mm. you know, you're on. It's kind of like once you want a PlayStation. Yeah. And then once you get it, you're like, ah, I've got it now. What, what do I want next? Yeah. It's sort of that. Mm. And I think that that's just how it is. Like, I know people who are sort of not working at all and are just desperate to get in the room. And yeah. there's some people who are in the room and fed up of... It, they're always looking for the next thing. It's quite an actory thing, isn't it? Looking yeah, the you're never satisfied, you know. You, you win a What's On Stage Award, you want to win an Olivier. You win an Olivier, you want to win an Oscar. Yeah, and then what happens after that? But then do you get to the end of your life and you think, I never took time to sort of look around and go, this feels all right. Yeah. You know, you never sort of lived in a moment and yeah. thought, actually, these are the good days. Yeah. Surrounded by good people doing good work. Yeah. You, you need to find that at some point yeah, so as an actor, don't you? Otherwise, what's the end point? Because you're never going to end up with a speedboat and <laughs> pick out, sorry. So you've got to take your places while you can. Yeah. Tom Cartney says a good thing. I think he was doing a talk maybe at Rado or something. And someone put the hand up and said, have you got any tips about anyone wanting to become an actor? And he said, don't do it. And he said, because the people who should be doing it, the people who will ignore that advice and those are the right people to be doing it. Right. Who don't care that it's not the logical thing. You're not going to get a house. You're probably going to be renting all your life or whatever. Those are the people who should be doing it have got the right mindset. Yeah. There's a sort of like bloody-mindedness and a doggedness. Like I know people I was at college with who dropped out and it always, it always scared me, the thought of like, oh, you, you failed or you haven't quite, you've not sort of made it. But it's like, there's not a failure. No. There's not a failure to want to be able to kind of buy nappies, have a roof over your head, have a car. Yeah. Um, but I always felt like if I didn't stick it out, I'd have fallen short. But I've always thought, well, if I get to the point where I'm doing it and I'm not enjoying it, I'm just doing it for the sake of it, just to kind of prove to my younger self, then that's when you need to walk away. Yeah, yeah. I still am having fun. Are you still having fun? Yeah. Yeah. When you work, it's fun. Even when I'm not working, it's still fun. There's always the possibility there, isn't there? Yeah, like... Even when you're sort of grafting in a cafe or yeah. working with naughty kids at schools, whatever, mm. there's always that thing of, oh, I might be out of here next week. It keeps you going. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I don't know how people do nine to fives and go, do you know what? I'm here, I'm here till 
forever. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Gradual I've got a car and I've got a house and, uh, yeah. and a mortgage and I'm married and I've got two kids. Yeah. But that's all. I mean, that, that, that would just, yeah, that wouldn't sue me. But just going back to. I've totally gone off the whole writing thing. It's all right. <laughs> well, we're going to get back to it. Do you remember when was the first time that you saw something on stage or heard it on the radio or saw it on TV? Something that was set in Hull. That was about Hull. Oh, the Fields and Horses. Is that the one? Yeah. 85. Uh, I've always liked that Alan Plater stuff as well. Yeah. Did you do the Land of, Land of Green Ginger? Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. And um, play-wise, so I think that's probably the first time, the first of something Hull. Yeah. And then I didn't really, I didn't really like doing drama until I got into sort of secondary school. And I didn't really... I'll, I'll come back to it. I'm gonna me- I'm gonna mention a play which you were in. Okay. Uh, I think it like at school they they've uh, they've scrapped drama now. Yeah. In schools. Yeah. Which is really shit because if they'd have done that while I was there, I, w- I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have. I would have done maths or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think it's sort of year nine when you have to do drama. Okay. And then I had this drama teacher sort of nagging me, sort of being the school play. It's a bit it's a bit uncool doing the school play. Mm. So you're like, fuck that, I'm not doing the school play. And then in year 10, I had a bit of a run-in with my science teacher. I want to shit at school, but mm. if I didn't like her, that was it. Yeah. And she'd lost my coursework. And I was predicted a D in science, and my coursework was a B. So I was well chuffed right. with this coursework. And she said I, it wasn't good enough, and I had to do it again. I was like, well, that's, that's a lie. And then there was this rumor going around and she'd lost it all. She'd moved out and she'd lost all this coursework. That's why we're doing it again. So that was it. Like, I was a nightmare for her. I was really rude to her. I was a bit, I was, I'd apologise to her if I ever saw her again. But I think she gave me like two months worth of detentions all in one go. She was that pissed off with me. Uh, detentions were on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And uh, you also had the, the clubs, the maths and the drama club. And you had the late bus. So anyway, Miss Fletch, the drama teacher, got wind of this load of night attention I got. She's like, well, we're doing the school play. We're doing Midsummer Night's Dream. She says, I'll, I'll get you out of that if you do this instead. And uh, I was like, she wanted me to play like Pyramus or something. I was like, I'm not doing that. It's too many lines. She gave me a wall. Gave me the part of the wall. About eight lines. I think it was about 12 altogether. She, she cut them down to eight. Yeah, I did that. That's how I sort of got into it. Right. And then, I enjoyed it, but I didn't think it was going to happen. And then, I think I was 15, maybe 15 or 16, I was deciding what I needed to do. Not to make you feel old, but I saw Up On Roof. Bit of context. That was Up On Roof by Richard Bean, about the whole prison riots in 1976, performed at Hull Truck. Yeah, so that was 2006. Yeah, I left school in 20, 2007. Right. And I saw that, and I thought, fucking hell, there's all these actors from home. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, there's people from here that do that. Mm. That looks fun. And it was a, such a good play. Yeah, it was fun, wasn't it? I think that's the first time I've ever been sort of allowed to use my own accent. I didn't have to kind of make it West Yorkshire or RP. Yeah. So that for me was a similar experience where it's like I can be somebody from home. And it was it was revelatory for me as well. 
Yeah. And I loved that play. And it felt like Hollywood. It wasn't just set there, it felt like it. No. And it's so I was, I think, a little pressure on me that I, you know, I could do what I wanted, but there's an expensive, you've got to go to college and do your A-levels. And then sort of the week before doing these A-levels changed my mind. I was like, I wanna go, I wanna go to old college and do this B-tech in drama. Yeah. And uh, that was sort of one of the reasons sort of made me start thinking that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Was it useful that course? Did it kind of Yeah. Yeah. It was all practical. Mm. You know, they sort of same with drama so they do the minimum amount of work. Yeah. I was kind of, I'm quite dyslexic. So Writing an email is quite difficult, but writing dialogue is, is fine as long as I have a good proofreader and yeah. make sense of it for actors. Yeah. yeah, so if I hadn't gone there. Yeah. When was the first time you, you wrote Hull? You wrote a whole story? It was the first play I wrote. Was it? Um, I like writing about places I'm involved in at the time. So I wrote this play called The Words I Should Have Said to Phoebe Lewis. Did you see that? I did, yeah. It's set in Sickle, but the girl's from Hull. There always has to be a whole, whole element. Right. And we put it on in London, but people still got mm. the sort of the, the whole and sort of it. Tom, Tom Wells is a, you know, Jumpers for Goalposts. Yep. And he's on about how shit the 75, 76, 77 is. Mm. The bus. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it Patrington? Patrington, I think. And um, I watched it at the bush. People were still laughing. Yeah. Um, again? Yeah. <laughs> but people, yeah, do you know, know what I mean? They people, could yeah, um, it. Yeah, it don't really matter. As long as you get they they knew. Yeah. Do you think there's something very particular about Hull? So do you think a play like Jumpers for Goalposts, if, if you just reset it without rewriting it, if you just reset it in somewhere else in the country, would it still work? Or is there something unique and particular about Hull? Um, I don't know. I think I'm biased. Hull's like a writer's paradise. Yeah. I'm going to quote Bean. I think Bean said something about he went to Hull and he walked, I don't know, Bev Road maybe? And... He bumped into it like it was like four young guys asked him if he could go get some beer from a shop, and then he walked a bit longer. And there was this, you know, all these it's like captain from Mike Lee yeah. So it is a right, it's paradise, yeah. It's, it's hard to be objective, I suppose. No, there is a lot of writers from home who are good, yeah. Lucy Bearmore, the Radio 4, to Hullenbach. To Hullenbach, yeah. Now that's very popular, but that's so whole, isn't it? Yeah. That's, um, Filling through her mind in a kind of particular, there's like a surrealness about it. Yeah. I think. The, the stuff that we kind of take for granted that just happens just around us, that is quite surreal. We just think yeah. that's just normal, isn't it? Yeah. I've been in plays, though, like, where it's been a play written for another, like another area, like Newcastle yeah. or Plymouth or somewhere like you know, and uh, local audiences love a local reference. Yeah, but I don't know that some of the quality of writing, what I've seen from home, that's gone into other places, it kind of transfers quite easily. Yeah, I don't know if that is the case for other things I've seen where it just hasn't worked. Yeah. There you go. In terms of the whole stories that have, that have been written, um, some of the big stuff, Civil War, fishing, yeah. they're starting to be covered quite a lot now. Yeah. Some brilliant stories that yeah. are just waiting to be written. 
Is there a story that you want to write and you think, before I finish, I have to tell that story? I don't know if I should tell you. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> I'll, I'll close my ears. It'll keep recording. <laughs> I won't listen to it. I won't edit it. <laughs> so, it's obviously the Barry Nuttall story. Yeah, just tell us about that, because that is an amazing story. Yeah, but... But that's, yeah, OK. That ship has sailed. Yeah. Well, if people want to Google Barry Nuttall Hall, it's yeah, a brilliant yeah, story. Yeah, you can find it yourself. It just writes itself. Yeah, it does, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to write a play about Hull City. Yeah. I looked, we, middle child, we looked into writing a play about Hull City. Yeah. And at the time I was, you know what, you know, let's, let's write a play about the history of Hull City. How do you make that universal? And then we sort of interviewed a lot of people. And then in the end, we sort of, I think that the charity that we're given this money to write this play, it went bust. Right. I can't remember who it was. Now, I want to, there's a couple of stories I heard. Mm -hmm. I'd love to combine the two. Right. There was one guy, so we would hold meetings and blokes for who were passionate old city supporters. Yeah. A lot of them not going to the games anymore and probably still not going to the games anymore or buying any of the merchandise because yeah. the whole thing. They'd come and they'd moan about that. But then some people would come and tell us a really good story. There was two good stories. There was one guy who, he was sort of around the, I pitched it around the table with his family. And his daughter asked him, what's the best day of your life? And in a flash, he didn't have to think about it. He said, Wembley. Dean Wendell scoring the goal 1 0 Bristol City, which, you know, he's up there with me. Me too, yeah. You know, and uh, I'm, I'm not married, I ain't got kids, but, uh, and his wife sort of spoke with him later. I pictured it sort of maybe in bed, just sort of said, Is that really your best, best day of your life? And again, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It was, and she, she sort of highlighted that. What about the day we got married, or the birth of our two kids? And I think it was sort of, there must have been a lot of other stuff, but it was sort of the cherry on the top mm. for her, and she left him, like, divorced him. She, really? Yeah. Oh my God, that's dark. <laughs> I know. And then there's another story where a bloke, so the semi, I wish it was the FA Cup final. I wish it was that, but it wasn't. It was the semi-final. Right. It was the same day as the London Marathon. Yeah. And this bloke had signed up for the London Marathon and he obviously couldn't get out of it because there was a lot of money at stake, but he had to run his best time by a mile to do the London Marathon and then catch, was it five o'clock kickoff? Or something? Yeah, it was, yeah. At the semi-final? Yeah, Sheffield United, yeah. Yeah, uh, to catch it. And uh, he, you know, he'd planned the whole route before, but how to get, and he spoke with the organisers and they'd even like, you can cut through this barrier and this will save you five minutes. Right. And we'll, we'll get you on, you know, and everyone sort of teamed up with him. Yeah. So I thought of combining the two. So he sort of accidentally signed up for this London Marathon. Maybe his mate has broken his leg and he can't do it. And maybe it's for a charity that his wife is really passionate about. And uh, to win her back, he thinks, if I do this London Marathon, I, you know, I'll do it. And then it clashes. Uh, you know, on the semi-final, and he has to then, well, he, he, he has to go to the match, and he, but he has to do this, and he has to train and do yeah. this record time. I wish, though, it had been the final. There's something tragic about when we lost 3-2, yeah. but something very whole about it as well. Yeah. Like, it, 
I felt like we'd won. Yeah, because I know a lot of Arsenal fans have been like, oh shit, mate, you, you know, you, of course I was gutted. But they'd all come from all over the globe yeah. to be in this final and paid a lot of money. And we scared the shit out of them. Yeah, we did. And if Curtis Davis had got that header, that got cleared off the line. Was we it? Were... Kieran Gibbs cleared it from the top corner. It was heading for the top corner, wasn't it? Yeah. And there was a beautiful moment in that final. What was totally missed, because everyone was obsessed with Arsenal, yeah. was when... And Alex Bruce had a scorch of the game. And if yeah. he'd have stayed on and not been injured, we would have won that. And he came off. And I don't know what when it was he came off, but it was in the second half. And Brucey sort of looked at him and was like, and it, was, it wasn't it was like player and manager, it was like father and son. It was a bit like, you did good there, well done. I'm proud of you. And then yeah. that was it. But yeah, I just think write a play about, I wish it was the final, because mm. that thing of... Everyone would think, oh, it was a waste of an effort yeah. to go all to that for them. To, and it, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a waste because I was there. Yeah. I was there. Yeah. So I'm getting a bit like about it. But. <laughs> it's a fine line with sport on stage. But I remember, did you see Confessions of a City supporter? No, I've read it though. Yeah. Because that was Alan Plater's play about, it was kind of a uh, scene in the history of Hull City through the eyes of a generations of one family. Yeah. And Roy North was in it and yeah, Martin Barras. That's Barris. why I sort of I read it. Yeah. Because when I was sort of looking into doing it, that was one of the first things I read. Yeah. I wanted to write a play about Old City, but yeah. I've been stunned yeah. about not making it an education yeah. about how great. No one's to watch that. Do you sort of feel pressured that you sort of really beat yourself up if you got it wrong or you were didn't end up in the image of what you'd imagined it? Like it that? never ends up how you imagine it anyway. Really? You have a, an idea. A lot of the bargain for people who sat in as a writer and who are sort of doing it as well is you have this perfect image in your head and then you'll get halfway through and you'll go, ah, this, this isn't planning out how it was and, oh, fuck, I might stop this. You'll have doubts and stuff. And the idea is just to plough on and plough through it and get to the end and then you can make it good. Mm. I think anyone who's sort of worked with me will know that my first drafts are nothing like a second, third, fourth. The first drafts are usually just a skeleton of ideas mm. and then maybe there'll be a scene or two that's quite good why did you run with that mm. and then I'll run with that mm. so you almost kind of it becomes an entity and you just have to shepherd it yeah really. but you have to know what you write you have to know why you're writing it about yeah I think I struggle when people ask that question and they go why do you want to write a play about that mm. I will learn how to voice it right it's just like a, you know the feeling yeah I know the feeling yeah and that's your guiding light in the darkest moments where you think I don't know where the fuck this is going yeah. you still have the feeling yeah. and that's when you know to plow, plow yeah. on with it I, I used to uh, there's the beginning uh, there's the end I'll do something in the middle mm. and I've been writing a play my granddad lives in Withenshaw and um, I like Withenshaw but it's a bit like Hull that gets a rep of Withenshaw it's a shit it's mm. not a shit it's a nice I quite like it yeah down his street, though, it's a drug dealer. My granddad's fuming because this house has been turned into flats and so there's a lot more cars down the street and there's a lot more people walking in and out of this house. And my uncle's a, a, a clever clock and he's amazing. He's like, Will Hunting, I've got Will Hunting. He's just, he's a one-off. Yeah. And uh, stories like that really excite me. So this thing I wrote a whole truck called Home, it came from this idea that my uncle had 
some really noisy neighbours who used to play music all the time. My uncle designed this machine that sent a frequency out and disabled all electronics going. And so he would just end the party like that. <laughs> and then they'd flip the stereo back on, going, what's going on with the stereo? And then he'd just flick it again, he'd play with them. And then he put this video of him doing that. <laughs> got hundreds of thousands of hits on YouTube. Right. People from Australia, Denmark, I will pay you to come over and, and sort my neighbours out. And then he, he put it down, he's like, I can't be doing this. But that's quite unique. I think everybody has a, it's amazing. a unique, you'll have a unique story. Yeah. You might not think it because it's normal. Mm. But so that's really normal to me. But sort of realised actually that's quite yeah. in my head for this drug dealer play. My uncle and my grandmother have the capability of getting rid of a drug dealer like that. Yeah. Just by I don't know, and that's where the idea came from. Right. And it's a recognisable feeling in the pit of your stomach. You go, I have to follow this. Is yeah. that is that what it is? Yeah. And I followed it in order this time. I haven't thought about an end or a middle until I've written a beginning and then right. a scene after the beginning. Yeah. And then I followed it that way. And I quite like that approach. Right. It's like a lot less messy. And then just jot down some ideas if you've got some further ahead. Mm. But don't don't add until you've done the gaps. Okay. You've joined it up. That's interesting, because each writer will have their own sort of process. Just the process uh, is it loose? Does it fit your kind of thought patterns? Or do you go, this is how I always work? It, ch it just changes. You, you have a new approach every time, whatever it needs. I'll always have, I've got a little book in my bag. You know, a lot of it as well is, if I'm not going out and not meeting people or going to the pub, my ideas will dry up. I sort of have to find some time to write. But if I just set a whole week, I'm going to write a play in a week, mm. it'll be shit. Because I've spent all day in my room or typing yeah. and a lot of it is meeting people and going fucking hell that was funny what you just said right and writing it down do you know what i mean and that can re-divert the direction in which you're going kind of yeah right yeah a lot of people as well they'll sort of watch things or come along mm. and they go oh fucking hell that bit there that was me wasn't it oh really and i go yeah 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 so that's when i was you know i like that i think sort of when people ask me what's your favorite job mm. mike bradwell for theatre, and then probably Mike Lee for film. Yeah, a lot of it is they put such so much emphasis on the actor, mm -hmm. sort of being creative yeah. and helping you with the words. And Mike had a really good way. He was working with a writer called Doug Lucy, and there were so many redrafts, or we'd come up with things and then Doug would put it in, or he'd make your job easy. So he made the character from home, mm. which maybe that shouldn't be, mm. but you know, it, he sort of shaped it around you and you, you'd sort of come in with things, mm. and, you know, so you, the collaboration between director, writer and actor was really important. Mm. Um, so sort of, I'll write a draft and a skeleton of ideas mm. and then it has to be workshopped, it has to be out right. It's so important that, and even like changing phrases and rhythms mm. of how I'll always have an actor in mind for it and if I don't I'll then shape it around that actor I think that's really important I don't know if that's cheating serving the play you know blah 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 I'm not precious with words either because a lot of it isn't about the words mm. I see so many plays where if you actually read the play after actually that plays and 
that good reading it. But then why was it so good watching it? And I think that's to do with that. When you workshop an R&D, do you run those sessions or do you get a director? Um, a director. Yeah. Um, Have you ever tried to direct your own stuff? No. That's a massive fear, that. Um, of director? Yeah, I was asked to direct something. And I ended up sort of going, oh, no, no, I can't do that. Right. I don't know how to do it. And um, I ended up sort of going, but my, girl, my girlfriend directs. And yeah. then ended up sort of hooking her up kind of thing. Right. When there's another director, it gives me an opportunity. It's collaboration. Mm. There's so much importance on the actors and the director and me working together mm. to make it good. If, if it was just me directing and writing, mm. it lacks something. Mm. I don't want to slag anyone off. No. But people who write and direct, sometimes when you work with people like that, they lack it lacks something. Or some, somebody to be go, do you know? Because actors don't feel like they have a place to go, do you know what this is? This bit here, mate, it's not great. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or, and if you're directing it, then you're, you're constantly doing quality control on behalf of the writer, which you are. Yeah. So you're missing out on outside influence from Yeah, you, from need, you need that. Yeah. You need, it's so important that the three work together mm. and make it good. The downside to that sometimes, you lack a voice. I've had that. Right. Where I've let too much in, mm. too many people in, and then it's totally sort of evened out. It there's no clear voice. Right. But if there's a freedom to it, so... You do your first draft, you have an idea, they mm. give all their ideas mm. and that, and then you go again and you, you do that draft. Mm. And then, as long as they give you that freedom mm. to have a voice as well, then that's fine. Yeah. Sometimes I felt like, like, oh, this doesn't feel like my play anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a writer, but I kind of worried that it was getting away from me a little bit. It was becoming some, somebody else's or something else. Yeah. But, you know, I've been in rehearsal rooms and I've thought of things and people go, oh, yeah. That's that's really handy. Or somebody, another actor's come up with something, yeah. and the writer goes, "That solved the problem for me." Yeah. And it's like they're wearing a tailor-made suit, yeah. so their character, they have some kind of ownership over it, and that benefits the, the production as a whole. Yeah. With Mike, keep going back to Mike. I'm really sorry. No, but don't apologize. We 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 didn't look at the text until maybe the second week. We yeah. focused on character. Right. And then for two weeks we sat around the table discussing. I'm going through the texts and learning about our characters and then we blocked and put on this play within a week. Mm -hmm. And then we had four weeks all together and we finessed it last week. Yeah. But I was so worried, you know, in that end of that second week going, fucking, I haven't even stood up yet. Um, yeah, you get that panic though, you think, well, what are we going to do in front of the audience? Yeah, but we had, there's that total under, understanding. Yeah. Everyone's on the same page. And it's a real collaborative thing. You have to trust the person who's in control of that. Yeah, and like sometimes ideas are shit and suggestions, but it does help. It might, someone might suggest something and we go, ah, it's not that, but it's, it's that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or oh, try several things. I've got three alternates. And then we all, ah, that's a good one. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but I, I do think when I'm in a room with a writer, it's a new piece, you think, God, it's just, they have to have so much trust. And yet, they still have to have that vision where they know if it's if it starts to drift off course, they've got to just nudge it back on. I think that's where a really good director working in, in collaboration with the writer just keeps things on track. Yeah. But not too on the rails. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're part of the whole theatre scene as a writer and actor. Where would you like to see it go next? What, what sort of direction? What do you think is in the next chapter for kind of theatre and home? 
I also got that 2017 buzz, which was it was great to sort of be a part of. Mm. And we're sort of retelling a lot of stories about the past. I love comedy and I think that's sort of a thing we do really good at, sort of bits of comedy and then within it moments of that make you feel like emotional and sort of you can come out having a good time but also sort of feeling things. I think that's a, a good night out. Mm. Like if you went and saw like The Crucible on a Saturday night, mm. you know, that's not, go see that on a Wednesday yeah. on a Thursday night. Anybody who makes Steering Hall knows that you have to give people a good night. There's an expectation that if people come to your, see your thing, you know, they put the best shirt on, they want to have a drink and they want to have a good time. Mm. Ideally, have a, have a laugh. Whole truck have known that, you know, through the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Godbird, uh, that shaped the way he wrote. He adapted the, what he wanted to do originally. I, I think as well, like, after Godbird left, there was that impulse of, we need to do something different now. Yeah. That ship sailed. I'd, I'd love to go, not put on a load of Godbird plays, but new, new writing. Mm. You, you know, there's so many voices in this city yeah. that don't ha have a voice to showcase themselves. Mm. I'd love to do. I'd love to see things like that. There's a theatre in Manchester called Contact, and I had, a, I had an interview there a couple of weeks ago about working with some Prue kids and coming up with this play. Mm. Sort of working with them, coming up with the story they thought, collaborating with them, and then getting some actors and putting it on. And just in the foyer, and in, you know, in the in the green room and you know there's a snooker table and ping pong as well it felt like it was not just a theatre it was a community building it was, yeah and I felt like it felt welcoming rather than intimidating because yeah, a lot they, of people look through a theatre doorway and they go that doesn't look that friendly I don't belong there I, I've had that I have a lot more confidence with it now first time I went to the National I saw Edward II or something not like that it was packed seats in front of me were gone so we've seen it before, so I just put, I didn't put my leg up, just put my knee up and rest it sort of on the chair in front. Not over it, under it. It's a bit like that, what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> so you got your knee just poking up above the table, yeah? Yeah. Teacher. Well, I didn't know he was a teacher. Right. This bloke, maybe in his 50s, he came over to me, right behind me as well. You should know he's a teacher, so you shouldn't do that. Yeah. Right there. In like, your face, yeah. It, yeah, sort of right on my shoulder. Yeah. He went, excuse me. Do you know that people sit on those seats? And I sort of turned to him and he was like, yeah, I do. And then he said, well, do you mind putting your feet down? And I didn't say anything to him. I just sort of took it on the chin. And for the whole of the second half, all I was thinking about was him. Totally made me feel so uncomfortable. I was at drama school at the time and we've been on the national, so we've been on actually on the stage. And yeah and practice some lines and stuff. So, I, I, you know, I felt, when I went, so the impulse was, oh, I want to go again and see what it's like. Anyway, I waited till the end, and I waited for him. And I had it out with him. And I said, you won't go off. And I have effing and blinding, Kathy Burke in it. You won't go a fucking clue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and then I said, uh, blah, blah, blah. And his wife was then, you know, getting involved as well, and was trying to sort of, guys, you know, chill yeah. out. And I said, let me guess. Let me guess. You're a teacher, aren't you? <laughs> He didn't say anything, and we sort of left it there. Anyway, I sort of was waiting in the foyer, and his wife sort of came over and said, I'm really sorry about that. He said, do you know what's funny? He, said, he is a teacher, he's a lecturer at a university. 
and um, it put me sort of well off. But there is that sort of code, isn't there? An unwritten code, and if you transgress, it's like you get punished before you even know the rules. Yeah. If, if you're not used to going to the theatre, if you're taking a punt, yeah. and it's not a cheap place to go out on a night, is it? No. And, and, it just goes the same. and then you got somebody on your shoulder telling you what you can yeah. and can't do. It, yeah, it put me really off. I know what you mean. I went to see a play there recently. It was very good, really well performed, but just listening to the accents and the voices around me, I just thought, am I, am I the target audience for this? Yeah. It just felt like the play was to flatter those wealthy professionals. Yeah. I just thought that particular night, I was like, I feel a bit out of place here. Yeah. I am, um, oh, what was it? Was it Julius Caesar at Whole New Theatre, RSC? Oh, yeah. The first black Hamlet or something like that. Oh, um, it was yeah Hamlet recently. The yeah, recent uh, Hamlet. Tour. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Said Hamlet. Obviously. Yeah, and I had a pal in it. He's like, "Come along, come along." Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, brilliant." And uh, I was dead excited. Uh, Walking into the new theatre, and I, I had a Costa in my hand, and I get why there's big security thing, but it's like, sorry, get cat come in, and I was like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah no worries." Sophia with the drink, and it's like, "That's no worries." Obviously, they wanted people to buy drinks at the bar. So I sort of waited outside next to these electric doors. Mm. He came over to me again and he said, you need to be 10 yards away from the, from the, uh, the building. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. And, and um, the whole audience, so you, you hope something like that would inspire, you know, people who don't usually go to the theatre to go to the theatre. And uh, I just thought that in the foyer happening with Titus Curry, you know, there the middle of the airport. The whole audience is white, and I don't know. There, there has to be people are trying. Yeah, but some places are, and yeah. other places they have their regular audience of a certain age with a certain yeah. income, certain background, and they seem happy with that. The build, that's it. The building has to change. Um, if I want to go watch some theatre, I'll go to the Soho if yeah. I'm in London or the Bush. Theatre in Manchester, there's they've got contact, but the Royal Exchange and home. The building's very, you know, middle class, which is fine. There should be that, but there should be, it should be accessible to everybody. Yeah, you know? attractive to everybody. Yeah, the, the middle child office, they're on an estate. Yeah. And they get kids there walking by it at 3.30 when school finishes. And I've been in there sort of doing some writing. They come in sometimes just to check it out. And that, that's all you need. Mm. But that can make a difference for them. Yeah, massive difference. Or just out of, you know, the 30 kids who walk in there, what, what's going on in here? Mm. Yeah, what, yeah. what are you doing in here? Yeah. Can you imagine if, like, one kid from that estate got into drama because mm. they walked in and they saw these books? Or they Googled what this billboard they were doing. Oh, that's pretty cool. Mm. Might have a go at that. Who knows, that could be the next Andrea Dunbar, Joe Orton, Tom Wells, Jim yeah, English, you know, yeah. yeah. Cheers. Big cheers to Jim for doing that. I really enjoyed that chat. And um, there are lots more writers of Hull coming up in the next few weeks and months. So, uh, so keep checking back. Before I go, I just want to mention a project which Jerome Whittingham started a few months ago. A lot of you will know Jerome. Um, in fact, most of you will have seen and probably been in a photo taken by him at one of the myriad events that he's covered in Hull and the East Riding over the years. So in November 2018, he set up Hull Is This, 
uh, a platform for constructive journalism, where he publishes news with a positive purpose, created by freelance creatives. That purpose, he says, is, and I quote, to build up communities and people, making the city an even more enjoyable, prosperous and vibrant place to live, work and visit. It works by giving some context and background to the big local stories and balancing some of the gloom and sensationalism with news of things that are going well, people who are making things better round here, and by showing its readers how they can be part of that progress rather than just passive and frustrated consumers of the river of clickbait diarrhoea flowing out of Blundell's Corner. A couple of years back, we were invited to take back control! It remains to be seen how that's going to pan out, but at least Jerome is giving us a way of feeling more empowered about how our story is told. So have a skeg. Search Hull Is This in Facebook, and if you're not on there, uh, the website is hullisthis.news. And here to play us out is some music that I've, <laughs> I say written, inspired by Ravel and Debussy. Thanks for listening, and until next time.